by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about political repression inside Ukraine. Also going to be touching on imperialism and the weaponization of empathy. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. I have fought not only for my people, I have fought and will continue to fight increasingly for the rights and privileges of all people who are oppressed and who are denied their just share of the world's goods their labor produces. I have walked and will continue to walk in picket lines for the right of all men and women of all races to organize for their own protection and advancement. I will continue to cry out against police brutality against any people, as I did in the infamous Zoot Suit riots in Los Angeles in 1944, when I went into dark alleys and reached scared and badly beaten Negro and Mexican-American boys, some of them children, from the clubs and knives of city police. Nor have I hesitated in the face of that most un-American, un-American activities committee, and I am willing to face it again. And so help me, God, I shall continue to tell the truth as I know it and believe it as a progressive citizen and a good American. The woman who said these words is Charlotta Spears Bass. In her acceptance speech for the nomination of the Progressive Party vice presidential slate on March 30th, 1952. Bass was the first African-American to be a candidate for vice president 68 years before Kamala Harris, who honestly couldn't even tie that woman's shoelaces. For nearly 30 years prior, Bass was the former owner and operator for the largest black paper on the West Coast, the California Eagle. As a black woman working in the news media, as she called it, a watchtower, that's what she called the news media for black folks, Bass was deeply informed of the injustices that black Americans were facing throughout the United States. When her husband died in 1931, she became increasingly active in civil rights and social justice. While still operating the paper, she ran for office at the local level and marched in picket lines for various causes. She was a member of the NAACP, the Urban League, and the Civil Rights Congress. She also founded a pro-label organization to support Black women laborers called the National Sojourner for Truth and Justice Club. She co-founded the Progressive Party in 1948 and ran for Congress. In 1951, Bass retired from the Eagle to focus on party politics. Miss Bass was for real about that life. Her nomination was supported by other Progressive Party members, including W.E.B. Du Bois, who in his draft of the party's platform in the summer of 1952 wrote, quote, vote for Charlotta Bass, who represents Black America and American womanhood, as if one crown of thorns were not enough, she dares wear two. We cannot say that about Kamala Harris. I don't care what anybody says. We cannot say that about Katanji Brown Jackson. And we sure can't say any of this about Clarence never recused myself from cases my wife was involved in, Thomas. Why do I bring him up? 
because Jenny Thomas has always been a conservative activist. And for some reason, legal experts have held that the spouses of Supreme Court justices can be involved in politics without affecting the way their spouses rule on the court. But Jenny, she's been taking this thing to a whole new level. She was apparently very actively strategizing with the former White House chief of staff trying to overturn the election results. And she went so far as to appear at the January 6th rally to foment an insurrection. And since then, Justice Thomas, what's he been doing? Well, he has been repeatedly participating in cases that came to the court directly or indirectly involving those election results and his wife. For example, one of these was the court's decision in January requiring that Trump's White House records be turned over to the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. But the only justice who disagreed with that ruling was, guess who, Clarence Thomas. Jenny Thomas's newly released texts, 21 of them, 21 text messages sent to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, pushing him to find a way to keep Donald Trump in office, despite the fact that Trump actually lost the election and her husband's failure to recuse himself in the congressional subpoena case have created quite the conundrum for the GOP legal experts, and let's just say it, the Supreme Court itself. Because there's no mechanism, really, for dealing with Supreme Court justices who violate ethics rules because, well, Supreme Court justices really aren't covered by any ethics rules. There's allegedly a federal statute that says that justices are to recuse themselves if they have knowledge of uh, disputed facts in a case, but there's nobody that exists, no entity that really has to do anything to hold justices accountable if they do not comply. Basically, each justice gets to decide for themselves if they should recuse themselves and nobody is going to make them do otherwise. It's true, the Constitution claims that a Supreme Court justice can be impeached, but only one justice in the history of the Supreme Court has ever been impeached. And guess what? The Senate decided not to remove Samuel Chase in 1804. So you know doggone well the Senate is not going to vote to remove Clarence Thomas now because the House isn't even going to move to impeach him, no matter what AOC and the squad threatened to do on Twitter. Nancy Pelosi does not listen to those people. It's funny that Katanji Brown-Jackson said that she would recuse herself from the Harvard anti-affirmative action case should it come before the court if she is confirmed. But Clarence Thomas is sitting on the court right now, not recusing himself from cases in which his wife wanted an election to be overturned at the very least, and nobody can or will do anything about it. You know, Charlotta Bass's platform in 1952 called for civil rights, women's rights, an end to the Korean War, and peace with the Soviet Union. Her slogan during the vice presidential campaign was, Quote, win or lose, we win by raising the issues. She surely would have been subjected to the new red smear 2020 today, but none of the black so-called leaders we have today are worthy, honestly, of tying this woman's shoes because this government chose to demonize people like Charlotte Bass back then. 
And because this government did that, we have to deal with the Kamala Harris's, the Katanji Brown Jackson's and the Clarence Thomas's today. Oh, I know that comparison does not sit well with some folks, but we do win by raising the issues. That is still true. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Phil Willado, editor of the Virginia Defender newspaper and co-founder of the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. How are you? Doing well, Phil. Doing well. And, you know, of course, as uh, the war in Ukraine continues to unfold here, Phil, uh, in terms of what we see here in the U.S., and I dare say the West in general, um, uh, is has sort of been overlooking uh, political repression that's happening in Ukraine. And, you know, uh, I think it's noteworthy because we hear all the time, I know in the U.S., about, um, you know, political repression happening in other countries. But, I mean, not only do we not hear about repression that happens right here in the U.S., we also don't hear about the U.S.'s role in uh, supporting and facilitating uh, repression across the world also in Ukraine. And you recently published a piece about this. And I was hoping you could help us understand, well, first of all, like, what are some of the examples of political repression in Ukraine that we tend to not hear so much about here in the U.S.? And, you know, why you think that that information seems, uh, you know, it's like there's an effort to hide it or something. Let's see. Um, the present war in Ukraine began on uh, February 24th, and uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky declared martial law. Um, that's not so unusual for a country at war, but uh, I don't know how well that was reported here. But um, using uh, his new emergency powers, uh, Zelensky outlawed 11 opposition political parties accusing them of being pro-Russian. Now, um, many of those 11 parties had publicly opposed uh, the Russian invasion, but um, they were still banned. Most were small, but one of them, uh, the opposition platform for life, had come in second in the most recent uh, elections and uh, held 40-some of the 450 seats in the Ukrainian parliament called the Rada. Um, so that's a, that was a significant um, banning. Um, that same weekend, the president nationalized television news. He combined all of the national TV channels into one government-run platform to create what they call the unified information policy. In other words, completely controlling the flow of, new, of news through television um, in, uh, in the city. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in Ukraine. Now, one incident uh, got our attention immediately, um, and that was the arrest on March 19th of a man named Yuri uh, Tkachev. Um, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. T-K-A-C-H-E-V. 
the editor-in-chief of an online publication out of Odessa. Uh, the publication is called Timer, T-I-M-E-R. Um, he was arrested on March 19th uh, at his apartment uh, by agents of the uh, Security Service of Ukraine, the SBU, which is a federal uh, agency, federal police agency. And according to um, reports from his wife, Oksana uh, Chosheva, sorry, this Irish, Polish guy's having trouble with uh, other Slavic names. Um, but according to, um, to his wife, the agents came to the apartment, took him out, I guess, to the hallway, laid him face down. Um, had uh, Oksana leave the apartment. And then one of the agents went inside uh, to the bathroom and came out several minutes later, then brought the couple back into the apartment and lo and behold, discovered a grenade and a TNT bomb in the bathroom. Um, so the editor was taken away. Um, he was put in a temporary detention center and interrogated by the SBU. All his computers were confiscated. And um, it was only later that his attorney was allowed to visit him. This got my case because I know this man. Um, he was at the second uh, annual memorial for the uh, Odessa massacre. Uh, the anniversary memorial took place on May 2nd, 2016. And I was there um, as an international observer, along with uh, Bruce Gagnon from the uh, Global Network Against uh, Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, and um, Regis Tremblay, an independent uh, videographer. Um, so we met uh, we met Mr. Chuck uh, Tuchev, and um, they interviewed us. Uh, people from his staff interviewed us. And this is not a leftist publication by any means. It's a it's a fairly uh, I, I don't want to use the word mundane, but they cover you know uh, infrastructure issues, traffic accidents. Um, uh, right now, um, looking at the, the website, it, it looks uh, very much opposed to the Russian invasion. Um, and uh, I, the only uh, reason I can think of was that he would be uh, arrested is that he, uh, he and his uh, publication have been outspoken about, um, at least in the sense of reporting on it, the Odessa massacre, which took place back in May 2nd, 2014, when a, a large mob um, led by openly fascist organizations murdered 42 progressives by chasing them into the House of Trade Unions on Kulikovo Square, setting the building on fire. Um, and the uh, at least 42 people died from burns and smoke inhalation and trying to escape the building and being beaten by this mob. So that May 2nd is coming up, and maybe... Um, they were trying to send a message that uh, they don't want this massacre to be uh, for people to remember it because it, it's a way of um, uh, remembering that there are fascist organizations that run loose in Ukraine. Some of them have been integrated into uh, the country's military. Um, and when, um, you know, when President Putin of Russia talks about uh, denazification and that's dismissed as if it were a joke. Um, it's not a joke. There are Nazis. Um, I wouldn't call the Ukrainian government fascist or neo-Nazi, but it definitely tolerates and cooperates with uh, neo-Nazi organizations. So the the uh, and this you know 
this editor wasn't the only case uh, of someone who had, uh, you know, come under uh, repression. Um, we talk about several other cases in the article, but throughout the country, uh, journalists, activists, what's left of the left movement is coming under, you know, severe repression, and it's not being uh, discussed or, or covered uh, in the Western media. Yeah, I'm so glad, uh, Phil, that you did uh, explain what happened with uh, the trade union massacre, because that is definitely never uh, talked about in corporate media. And I I definitely remember you educating me and Mr. Lukman about that uh, um, and us participating in one of those solidarity protests back in 2018. Um, And another one of the things that is going on, has been going on uh, throughout this uh, conflict is the, uh, that's not being reported in U.S. media, is the arrest of young communist leaders uh, by Ukrainian security. So what is going on in Ukraine in the targeting of uh, young members, youth members of uh, communist organizations? Right. Well, um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in, uh, in uh, 1991, um, Ukraine uh, had a referendum and, uh, you know, decided to separate from that Soviet Union and for the first time in its history become a, a, an independent state. Um, at that time, uh, much of the state economy was still, much of the economy was still owned by the state, um, which is the way it was under socialism. Um, and there were communist parties um, that operated openly. Um, the Communist Party of Ukraine was banned in 2015, um, a year after the uh, the right-wing coup that took place in February of 2014 that replaced uh, the duly elected president with uh, a pro-Western government, which immediately began a crackdown on the uh, ethnic Russian minority, which is about 17% of the country, and about 30% of the country speaks Russian as its first language, and there's very close ties between, uh, uh, between Ukraine and Russia, historical, cultural, linguistic, and so on. So uh, after um, the events, uh, the, the current events with the, the war in Ukraine, um, well, you say there's been a crackdown, and there are two brothers, Mikhail and Alexander Kononovich, um, who were leaders of the youth group of the Communist Party. I actually don't know if that youth group was also banned, but they were jailed uh, earlier this month. Um, and I understand that they have been active in opposing an attempt at so-called agrarian reform. Um, I, I'm not an expert on, on this but uh, by any means, but what I understand is that, uh, uh, that one of the uh, changes after uh, Ukraine became uh, uh, independent and, and started to dismantle the socialist aspects of its economy was that the land, which had been collectivized, was broken up and given to uh, small farmers, with the provision that they couldn't sell it, um, there was still a feeling that the, you know the land should not be taken over by big agribusiness. Um, so uh, a new law was proposed that would allow the um, small farmers to sell, um, and that would of course lead to you know uh, you know mega 
corporations coming in and buying up lots of land and combining them into, you know, a mega agribusiness like we have in this country. Um, and these two brothers were opposing that policy. And I believe that's what they were most known for. Uh, and so they've been arrested, and I don't think anyone has heard from them since. Uh, uh, they were arrested in, uh, you know, like I said, earlier this month. And there has been, uh, you know, a campaign to put some focus on them. But, uh, you know, that also has been ignored in the West. Yeah, and I wonder why you think that is, um, Phil. And that was really going to be my next question is, I mean, why is it that this uh, context about uh, the reality of what's happening in Ukraine is basically completely absent, um, at least here in the the U.S. uh, uh, corporate owned media. I mean, we've only just recently got to a point where, you know, uh, they'll acknowledge the uh, uh, neo-Nazi elements uh, uh, within, you know, the Ukraine military and things like that. And see, from my perspective, to to raise this issue of political repression in Ukraine, I mean, it doesn't, you know, justify or condone uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But what seems clear is that in the U.S. and the West, there is a, a very sort of binary narrative about what's happening uh, in Ukraine that seems to be being pushed very uh, purposefully that um, would necessitate, you know, leaving out uh, issues like this political repression. It's sort of a, a inconvenient truth that problematizes the narrative being put forth by uh, the U.S. mainstream media and by the White House. And, you know, just from your perspective, Phil, I'm wondering why you think that is. Well, it's almost like, um, you know, two different versions of reality. Um, And whatever, you know, Russia or President Putin says uh, is dismissed as, you know, well, that's what they would say. You know, that's disinformation. You know, they're trying to, uh, you know, influence their own people and and so on. And they're not telling the truth. And I've never seen I don't think I've ever seen a situation where there's a foreign policy issue in which all of the media uh, the the uh, the mainstream media and unfortunately you know some of the media that's considered to be progressive is accepting the U.S. government line completely as if there's there's no uh, responsibility to maintain any healthy skepticism about what's being said. So Russia is the aggressor. Uh, all of this started when Russia uh, so-called invaded uh, Crimea. Uh, it just wants to uh, grab land, and it's making up all these phony excuses. The two things people have to understand to 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 have any kind of a, a, a you know objective view of what's going on is number one, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the United States promised Russia that, that NATO would not expand east, uh, then uh, Secretary of State James Baker made that promise to Mikhail Gorbachev of uh, the Soviet Union that. NATO would not expand eastward toward Russia. All 14 countries that have been recruited into NATO have been former uh, republics of the Soviet Union or sections of the um, of, uh, former Yugoslavia, a socialist country. All 14. So that the majority of countries that border Russia um, uh, on its western flank are either members of NATO or have asked to join NATO. Um, the only one really that, that hasn't uh, taken that position is uh, is Belarus. Um, even Finland now says it wants to join. So that's one thing. 
that, and that Russia feels threatened by that and has, um, you know, strongly objected to the possibility of Ukraine with its 1,200-mile land border uh, with Russia joining uh, NATO. Um, so Russia had a legitimate reason to be concerned. You know, whether or not that justifies invasion, that's a separate question. But the other issue was that in 2014, there was this right-wing coup, and now um, joining NATO is part of the Ukrainian constitution. And if Ukraine joins NATO, that's not, you know, just getting to, you know, hang out with the big boys. That means that any attack on uh, Ukraine would be viewed as an attack on all the other 30 NATO countries, um, which collectively, you know, have about 10 times the military budget of Russia. Um, And uh, so it puts Russia in a situation where um, any... uh, uh, any conflict on their border, you know, whether um, legitimate or contrived, could result in an actual war with NATO. Um, they view that as really uh, dangerous. Um, and, you know, with this right-wing anti-Russian uh, government in power, uh, that plus the expansion of NATO um, uh, are the reasons why Russia felt it so threatened. Um, now, it, it, to, you know, if, if people understood that, that would be, um, you know, that might raise some questions about who, you know, who bears responsibility for the current situation. So the the media in this country can often be very good about pointing out problems within this country uh, in the hopes that they'll, you know, correct them. And that actually strengthens the system. When it comes to foreign policy issues, it's a entirely different story. And they often, you know, will take years before they, they begin to, you know, release some of the information um, that they have. Uh, but that raises questions about, you know, it took a long time for the uh, the story, the real story of the Gulf of Tonkin uh, incident uh, to come out uh, in Vietnam. And that was the incident that uh, where Congress gave President Johnson a blank check to pursue the war. The, the you know the story that the U.S. invaded Grenada to save some U.S. students, medical students, who were threatened um, by uh, you know internal political turmoil in Grenada, uh, turned out to be false. Um, of course, the weapons of mass destruction story in Iraq. Um, why the U.S. spent 11 years fighting a war in Afghanistan when Afghanistan itself had nothing to do with 9/11. Um, and that war was pursued even after al-Qaeda was run out of the country. Well, the, the narrative um, that they put out has to be, you know, we're the good guys, the other people are the bad guys, um, and, uh, you know, don't question that because it's uh, if you do, then you're a stooge for the other side. And it, it, it that, you know, plus the fact that the anti-war movement these days is very weak um, and... Uh, you have a situation in which the average person just accepts what they they see on TV, hear on the radio, read in the newspapers, because it's all one seamless, you know, garment of uh, of of, of uh, spin is what I would really call it. You know, every time we talk, I go on and on and on, and then you tell me, "Well, I'm sorry, we're 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 out of time." And I, when I get off, I always say, "Tell you idiot, you didn't mention this, that, or the other." So please let me just say that the Odessa Solidarity Campaign, which the Defenders started after we came back from uh, Odessa in 2016, is once again calling for local actions 
uh, to take place on May 2nd of this year in as many cities around the world as possible to remember the Odessa massacre, which not only honors the victims uh, of, of that terrible tragedy um, and is a message of solidarity to the survivors who are still demanding an international investigation of that event, which has never happened. But it also points out the fact that, yes, there are actual Nazi organizations running the streets and suppressing anyone deemed to be not not, not just pro-Russian, but not sufficiently ultra-nationalist. Um, and it it uh, it helps to break through this you know this uh, total uh, you know spin story that the media is putting out about this struggling you know democracy uh, that's you know beset by this terrible Russian oh and don't don't forget uh, Ukraine is European Kiev is a European city um, not like those Russians which are apparently not European um, so there's a real racial aspect to this and. Uh, it's it's you know if we can just you know remind people about May second and if any of your listeners are interested in um, in doing something on that day in their own uh, cities and towns anywhere in the world um, they can contact uh, the defenders and uh, maybe we can give the contact information at the end of this segment. Yeah, definitely. And and one more thing I wanted to ask you about, Phil, because, I mean, you mentioned the anti-war movement and what we've been doing um, here on the show really since uh, the war in Ukraine began is kind of getting people's different perspectives about, you know, what they see as the most important tasks of uh, the anti-war movement in a moment like this, where the propaganda is is so strong and there are so many um, sort of different narratives and, and, and takes and, and analyses of the situation. And, you know, as someone who's uh, been in the movement for a long time, I'm just wondering how you're seeing it. Well, you know, if, if we didn't live in the United States and the U.S. was not involved uh, in this present war in any way, um, that would be one situation, and we might have a you know we might make an analysis and and uh, decide um, you know whether Russia's actions were correct or not. But we live here in the heart of the empire, the in the country whose government um, runs NATO as its own global military, and is ultimately responsible for setting up the situation in which Russia is legitimately concerned about its future, about its existence as a country. We've seen what the United States does to countries that it views as, as a, uh, opposition. Um, here's China that, that is, uh, is attacking no one and doesn't have a military anywhere near that of the United States, you know, except the land army, which is for defense. China is now, you know, we're being told is our greatest enemy. Why? Because they're outdoing the, the U.S. on an economic uh, arena. Um, so it, it's, we have to maintain uh, a healthy skepticism always, um, about what our government is doing. We know the history, we know how many wars were fought under false pretenses. Um, and we, we, we have to be aware of the fact that anything that we say as, as uh, you know, as representatives of the left in this country, can be used by the government um, to justify its position. So, if you're a so-called peace organization, and the first thing you say is we demand Russia withdraw its troops from Ukraine, 
that'll be when you get noticed. (laughs) That'll be when um, you might get some immediate attention um, because they can say, well, look, you know, even this group, you know, which is a peace organization is, is opposed to Russia. So the fact that you also say, oh, and by the way, you know, uh, NATO has been expanding eastward and the U.S. has been supporting a right-wing government. That gets further down um, in your presentation. The first thing that you say is, you know, is, is uh, Russia's wrong. So I don't know what uh, what other alternatives, you know, there could have been for Russia. I think if the situation just unfolded the way the U.S. wants it to, Ukraine would join uh, NATO. Uh, Georgia, with another land border, uh, would join NATO. Um and the, the military exercises that have been taking place jointly with the Ukrainian military between the U.S. and the U.K. forces and other NATO countries on Ukrainian soil, in Ukrainian airspace, in the, the, the Black Sea, which are obviously threatening. You know, don't forget, in 1962, after the U.S. put missiles in, in Turkey that threatened Russia, uh, the, the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union put nuclear-armed missiles in Cuba. And President John F. Kennedy brought the world to the point of of, of, of nuclear war, demanding that those missiles be removed. If if Russia had recruited, you know, all of Latin America into an anti-U.S. military alliance and was trying to recruit Mexico, and Mexico said it wanted to join because Russia had helped uh, overthrow a a pro-U.S. government and replace it with an anti-U.S. government. And they were doing maneuvers in the Gulf of Mexico and land maneuvers on the Rio Grande. I don't think there's any question, you know, in anybody's mind how the U.S. would react, you know. Um, so the fact that Russia has reacted, um, it's 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 not an unprovoked response. I guess that's the most important thing to, to, to try to bring out. It's being called an unprovoked attack, an unprovoked war, a war of choice. It wasn't. It was com- It was very much provoked. Whether they could have done something else, um, I truly don't know. So for the defenders, our position is we are neither supporting the Russian military action, nor are we condemning it. We are. We feel that our role as uh as anti-imperialists, as activists, as progressives, as leftists here in the United States, our role is to point out the responsibility of the United States and through the United States, the responsibility of NATO. That's our job. Definitely. And before we go, Phil, I think you said uh, a little earlier you had some contact information you wanted to give. Did you want to go ahead and uh, uh, get that out before we head out here? Yeah. I mean, you can Google um, Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality. Um, but um, I'll, I'll give the email address and uh, the phone and text number, if that's okay. Um, it's uh, Defenders, D-E-F-E-N-D-E-R-S, Defenders, F-J-E, for Freedom, Justice, Equality, at Hotmail.com. Defenders, F-J-E, at Hotmail.com. And the phone number is 804 644 Five eight three four. Can send us a phone message or a text. Eight zero four six four four five eight three four. And we'd be happy to talk to you about uh, how to do an action on May second. As modest as it may be, it doesn't have to be a hundred people out in the streets. It can be three or four folks, or in some cases, Jackie, two. <laughs> but you held your event in front of the Ukrainian embassy when there were folks. Uh, 
you know, menacingly uh, keeping an eye on you. And that was uh, that was uh, very significant. So. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about manipulation, media messages, and imperialism. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Onye Sonu Chateauier, an organizer with the All African People's Revolutionary Party and an editor with Hood Communist. Onye Sonu, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm a huge fan of the show. Well, we really appreciate that and your support on Ye Sonbu. And I'm glad we uh, have you on today because you recently published a piece on uh, hoodcommunist.org entitled Imperialism and the Weaponization of Empathy. And I think a number of things that you point out in the piece are actually quite important, not only to understand our current political moment, but I think to understand a lot of what happens in uh, imperialism in general. And I want to read just one sentence from your piece that I think sums it up well, where you said the ruling class propaganda apparatus depends on the cynical manipulation of our emotions and the weaponization of our empathy. It also depends on obscuring political and historical context in order to manufacture consent for imperialism. I mean, if that doesn't, you know, describe what we're living right here, right now, you know, I'm not sure what does. And you get into a number of things in terms of uh, specifically like the uh, uh, refugee and immigration issue and how there was all this fervor under Trump and how Biden presented himself as the antidote to these sort of nakedly uh, uh, racist uh, policies and things like that. Although his actual, you know, uh, uh, you know, Biden's actual immigration policies, I think, have uh, uh, been quite the opposite in truth and how we're seeing similar trends in terms of how uh, the war in Ukraine is being portrayed to us and how so much of it is caught up in, you know, driving home a message to the consciousness of the masses of people in this country, basically at the whim of the ruling class. But like I say, there's a lot there on Sonu. And so I want to begin by just sort of asking the broad question. How is our empathy weaponized against us by the ruling class in service to imperialism? Well, first and foremost, we have to understand that the media platforms we watch are not actually uh, free media platforms. Like the things that they choose to talk about, the news topics that are covered, the subjects that are given visibility um, are not developed organically. Uh, it's solely determined really by the political objectives, the ideological objectives, of the ruling class that's exploiting us all. And so for that reason, there's many, many, many things that are happening in the world, many injustices that we never hear about. Like, for example, Haiti was rising up for like three straight years against a puppet regime that the U.S. put in power. 
uh, constant protests, constant police stations on fire, like we saw in Minneapolis, like wall-to-wall coverage, and it was never really covered on the news. And the reason for that is because of the U.S. ruling class put that regime into power in Haiti, and they do not want people asking questions about it. And so instead, what we saw was, you know, video from the Hong Kong protests, which were reactionary, video from protests in Venezuela, which were reactionary. Uh, it's an intentional strategy uh, to control what gets visibility in order to manipulate how we feel about the world. And, you know, we, we look at politicians and I think it's easy for people to, you know, accuse uh, of the Trump administration of, of doing that, right? Like manipulating the media to get us to feel a certain way about U.S. Uh, policies towards specific groups of people. But this is something that's been going on throughout the Biden administration, just barely over two years in. And we've all already seen this happening in cases uh, involving, interestingly, that you just mentioned, Haitians, but with the refugees in, uh, in, uh, from Haiti and what's happening at the border and how U.S. policy regarding immigration is framed under the Biden administration. So, I mean, how has the Biden administration been weaponizing this, you know, the manipulation of media to, to cause us to see things in a way that obscures what his administration is really doing. I mean, the Biden administration has been deporting hundreds of Haitians every month since he got into office. And this is despite campaign promises uh, for a moratorium and all all, uh, deportations until we figure out what's going on, despite promising no more kids in cages. They opened up other additional child detention centers. And it simply wasn't covered uh, in the U.S. media. When Trump was in office, every single kid in the cage was an outrage. AOC was crying at the border. Every single deportation flight was subject to protests, people trying to stop it. And then as soon as Biden got into office, the coverage like shut off. It was like flipping a switch. Uh, meanwhile, you know, we're having this, this national conversation about uh, staying with Ukraine, these poor Ukrainians. The United Snakes is talking about bringing in 100,000 of them um, and giving them refuge within the U.S. borders. And the deportations of Haitians have never stopped at any point, and they are being sent back to Haiti that has been deliberately and systematically destroyed by a campaign of destabilization by the U.S. government to facilitate the exploitation of Haitians' resources and labor. So it's very, very clear that the issue is not of the coverage, is not about the cruelty of the immigration policy. It's really about, like, the U.S. foreign policy objectives and who they need us to feel bad about Uh, at any particular time to support those objectives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it sort of reminds me of uh, the presidency of George W. Bush. I mean, we had eight years of that. That, of course, included the uh, Iraq War and and so many other things. I mean, you know, he was kind of seen as a classic, you know, racist Republican warmonger. And there was a major resistance to that, you know, here in the U.S. And then Barack Obama comes along and all of a sudden um, we don't see like these massive anti-war demonstrations and things like that that we uh, saw under Bush because there seemed to be a kind of a lulling to sleep uh, of those elements. And, you know, uh, just to bring it 
sort of hone to uh, the current moment on Yeson. I mean, how do you see the same weaponization of empathy being deployed when it comes to the case of Ukraine and the war in Ukraine that has been unfolding uh, for about uh, uh, a month now? And it seems that that same old uh, trend is not only in play, but honestly just seems to be in hyperdrive. I mean, it seems ratcheted up to an extent that, you know, I don't think we've seen in, in quite some time. I tend to think that the intensity of uh, the manipulation is due to kind of the, the crumbling nature of imperialism itself. But how do you see uh, Ukraine uh, sort of being uh, uh, caught up or, or, or being sort of exemplified, if you will, in terms of this manipulation we're discussing? Well, Ukraine is such a blatant example. If you actually know the full historical context of the situation, if you're just going by the coverage on like CNN, Fox News, New York Times, you would think that like just one day Vladimir Putin flipped out and decided he was going to invade Ukraine to be mean out of nowhere. <laughs> just a month ago, you would think that this whole situation had no prior context, that it was simply about the emotional state of one man. But if you know the true historical context, you know that the United States has been uh, manipulating Ukraine, has been overthrowing democratically elected governments two times in less than 20 years, has been uh, 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 building up their military capacity. Um, they say Ukraine is not a NATO state, but really in everything but name, it actually is because NATO and U.S. military support has been pumped into Ukraine again for almost 20 years. And this was done with the sole objective of antagonizing Russia. They sacrificed the masses of Ukrainian people, tanked their economy, empowered far-right forces and literal Nazis in order to antagonize Russia. And so now people in the United States who believe this just started a month ago are talking about we need to stay with Ukraine. We need to start World War III for Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainian people have been suffering at the, the hands of the U.S. government and NATO powers for two decades. So what kind of solidarity is that? How can we say that we actually care about Ukrainians when we're completely ignoring the very, very long history of Western intervention in that nation? And, you know, yeah, it is that history that I think is really important in the fact that clearly the media is not talking about that history. And, and of course, we don't expect them to. But what does this say about the political education or the level of knowledge of just basic history of places that are not the United States that most Americans possess? I mean, is this also the way Americans are so easily uh, drawn in to this media narrative, it, is this really an indictment on the lack of political education that most Americans have? Absolutely. I mean, most people living in the United States are not active in a radical or revolutionary, or even social justice-oriented pol uh, political organization with who get that kind of political education. Most of it comes from the uh, educational system in the United States, which is itself also a tool of the ruling class to distribute the ruling class ideology throughout the population. And so we're seeing the consequences of that. We're seeing the consequences of a capitalist society that is intentionally uh, uh, not invested in education, not invested in literacy in order to uh, uh, create a submissive populace that does not think critically, that does think that things just happen out of nowhere in terms of global world events and geopolitical events. Um, it was done intentionally to confuse people in precisely this way whenever the ruling class needed to. Yeah, and what you just noted there, Onye Sonwu, was something that has really been 
hitting me uh, here in the most recent period in the sense that uh, on the show, we often talk about how people in the U.S. have to be some of the most propagandized people in the world. But that doesn't just start with, um, you know, whenever people may begin uh, 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 consuming the news media. It's actually something, you know, that begins from our earliest memories, if not before then. And uh, uh, certainly, like you say, it's reinforced through the education system. I think this is why Americans have such a short memory, a short historical memory, and have such a poor grasp on history and geography and so many other fundamental things. I mean, that kind of uh, um, ignorance, and I mean that in literal sense, is, I think, very purposeful, very purposefully sort of done and uh, constructed by the ruling class so that basically... Basically, for our lifetime, we're sort of molded and, and, and groomed to kind of go along with um, the imperialist line in this country and, and not to question it. And so it's 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 a uh, sobering sort of thing to think about and, and in a way sort of frightening because we're talking about the skewing of consciousness on a, uh, a mass scale for things that, you know, don't benefit the masses of poor working and oppressed people in this country and, of course, only benefit the wealthy minority. And so it's clear then, Onye Sunwoo, that what we're talking about, it's not just a matter of a corporate-owned media apparatus um, sort of working in tandem with uh, the state, but it's a deep structural process that uh, takes place over the course of generations. Yep, absolutely. And like I said, or like you pointed out, it's absolutely intentional. They are seeking to create a submissive population, a population that does not have critical thinking skills, because that is the easiest uh, electorate to sell on naked imperialism, to get them to align with it, to get them to support it. You got people calling for a no-fly zone in Ukraine that could not tell you what a no-fly zone actually is. It just seems fine because embassy is talking about it. So they're like, okay, let's do it to help Ukraine. This is typical across the board. Like, they convinced uh, the U.S. population that Saddam Hussein had something to, something to do with 9-11. And again, that's because of a lack of critical thinking skills, a lack of knowledge about history, a lack of knowledge about world geopolitics that was intentionally cultivated. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Onye Sonwoo, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. You know, so much of what we do here on By Any Means Necessary is really sort of uh, exposing what the United States really is as an empire, as an imperialist capitalist nation, and that how it portrays itself to the world and to us here in this country is just 
a straight up live. So as a bit of a throwback on that note, we wanted to uh, play this commentary by political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal from 2018 entitled Towards a New Jerusalem. And this is actually an excerpt from uh, Murder Incorporated, a book that uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal put out with uh, Stephen Vittoria. That basically challenges this age old notion of the United States as a city set on a hill and this kind of, you know, uh, biblical, holy, like salvific kind of image that the U.S. tries to portray. So we're going to go to uh, uh, this Mumia clip and hear him expound on that, because I feel like it just exposes so much about the lie uh, uh, that we know as this, you know, this notion of the U.S. as the greatest country on earth. Sky toward a new Jerusalem, America, as the new Israel. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14, 16. When he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and to cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God in all professors, for God's sake. John Withram, Governor, Massachusetts Bay Colony, City Upon a Hill, 1630. I have been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipments on the flagship Arbella 331 years ago, as they, too, faced the task of building a new government on a perilous frontier. We must always consider, he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Today, the eyes of all people are truly upon us, and our governments in every branch, at every level, national, state, and local, must be as a city upon a hill, constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. President-elect John F. Kennedy, 1961. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I've ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city, built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. President Ronald Reagan, 1989. Americans know that our future is brighter and better than these troubled times. We still believe in the hope, the promise, and the dream of America. We still believe in that shining city on the hill, 
presidential candidate Mitt Romney, 2012. Almost 400 years have passed since John Winthrop wrote the words, We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Words that have come to define and bolster the myth known as American exceptionalism. And like any giant lie, this fiction is responsible for the massive bloodstains splattered across the canvas of American history. Centuries of Holocaust and enslavement, accompanied by centuries of the always-in-vogue reality of perpetual state-sanctioned terror, also known as the murder and mayhem of war. American leaders have been invoking this mythical city upon a hill since Winthrop paraphrased the Sermon on the Mount to justify the land grab about to take place with its subsequent atrocities heaved upon the Pequot and Narragansett Indians, brutal massacres often launched against non-combatants. Governor Winthrop even declared the colony a vacuum, concluding that the indigenous inhabitants had no legal right or standing to their land. It was as if the existent population simply did not exist, and soon that would be fact. Winthrop and all the latter-day propagandists envisioned America as Shangri-La, a mystical and harmonious place, almost supernatural, where liberty, justice, democracy, and peace, not to mention affordable electronics, were the guiding principles. Well, like any good fairy tale, this American rhetoric sounds good, even sounds great, but has no basis in reality. There's no Easter Bunny, no Santa Claus, and there's definitely no utopian city upon a hill protected by a special sky god who represents American exceptionalism over all nations and cultures. Just like with James Hilton's novel, Lost Horizon, once you put down the fictitious and make-believe fable, there's no Shangri-La hidden at the western end of the Conlin Mountains. American mythology preaches that John Winthrop and his Puritan brothers left England in pursuit of religious tolerance and freedom. But in fact, Winthrop, the de facto father of American exceptionalism, was no proponent of religious tolerance or democracy in any way, shape, or form. If we should change from a mixed aristocracy to mere democracy, Winthrop wrote, we first should have no warrant in scripture for it. For there was no such government in Israel. A democracy is, among civil nations, accounted the meanest and worst of all forms of government. To allow it would be a manifest breach of the fifth commandment. You've been listening to an excerpt from Murder Incorporated by Mumia Abu-Jamal and Stephen Vittoria. This is Dreaming of Empire, book one. We'll be right back here on By Any Means Necessary. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And we're streaming live on Rumble at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. And at the top of the hour here, uh, it's being reported that the Biden administration plans to end uh, Title 42. This was a uh, border policy that emerged from the pandemic uh, under Donald Trump, of course, who was president at the time, that uh, basically um, allowed the government to uh, turn away migrants at the southern border. Uh, immediately. So just sort of an immediate, you know, turning away of people trying to enter the country. And this is supposed to be coming to uh, a close at the end of May. Now, um, the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, plans to issue the order uh, later this week and saying that it's doing so because, quote, there is no longer a serious danger um, that migrants entering the country would be carrying the, uh, you know, Corona virus and, uh, which was kind of the pretext for, you know, Donald Trump's notoriously racist, uh, immigration policy. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Esther Rivera, an artist, author, an independent journalist and host and producer of On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital, as a podcast and on Pacifica Radio. Esther, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sean and Jackie. Absolutely. And, you know, Esther, what I wanted to touch on today um, is this issue that we're seeing being reported on more and more as uh, Africans and other people of color in Ukraine um, uh, being forced to flee along with, you know, millions of others, of course, due to the Russian invasion. But we're seeing reports about um, African and non-white uh, people fleeing Ukraine uh, being detained in uh, institutions in, I think, neighboring countries of Ukraine. And I was hoping you could help expound uh, upon this and sort of help us understand what's really going on here. Yeah, so earlier this week, I know I saw uh, a report put together by, I guess, a consortium of media in Europe, the Independent, I think Radio France, and it documents how when we know these uh, African people living in Ukraine have already uh, experienced uh, severe discrimination trying to leave Ukraine as refugees, we know the reports and uh, basically on the ground uh, citizen journalism showing people not being allowed to get on trains, buses, other types of transportation to get to safety uh, out of Ukraine. Uh, African women 
even with newborn babies being uh, subjected to uh, no type of uh, refuge, you know, with um, with newborns, with 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 infants. And so this is kind of, I think, following up that treatment that we all saw documented. And apparently when uh, a lot of the Africans coming come into Poland, uh, what this report says is that they're being detained and being put into these camps. And unlike their, uh, the white Ukrainians, you know, who are being welcomed here and in other parts of Europe, they're being put into these camps and where their phones are confiscated. Uh, it's not really clear what type of legal recourse they have. Uh, some are being threatened. So uh, that, you know, that they will not be allowed to go throughout Europe like other white Ukrainians are being welcomed, you know, across Europe or, you know, definitely in Poland, uh, that they will be banned and, uh, you know, sent back to wherever they came from and not being allowed to enter, re-enter Europe, you know, any EU country. So uh, this report is really pretty harrowing. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, one report, I remember um, there's one uh, young man interviewed, I think they used his name as Gabriel. And he said that um, he was, his phone was confiscated. They took him to a camp out in the forest, is, is how he described it, and that there are some people there who had been there for weeks, obviously, uh, before even the uh, conflict began with Russia and Ukraine, and that, you know, some people there had, had gone mad. Uh, so... This isn't really being reported, uh, just like the situation of people being uh, victims of, of war in Yemen or Libya, the people you know, fleeing for refuge from these right-wing dictatorships that, we are, that the United States is supporting here. Their plight is not covered. Their situation is not giving, given the type of treatment, and they, as human beings, aren't giving the same type of treatment that you see Ukrainians receiving here. Yeah, Esther, I mean, as we're looking through the report and kind of, you know, looking at some of the um, uh, incidents that are being detailed, you know, there's one report of a young man, a Nigerian student who's identified as Ruben, who is facing deportation from Estonia um, after being detained there having fled Ukraine. He said that three police officers escorted his cousin away from his luggage and uh, he'd be detained for two days, then then deported back to Nigeria. Um, then they said that he would be banned from entering any uh, Shenzhen country. I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I'm not sure what that means. For the next five years, his phone was confiscated. He's been in detention ever since. Uh, and he... The, the report says that he has basically no legal recourse. So, I mean, Esther, how is it that the Biden administration can just now um, uh, uh, announce that they are, you know, ending Title 42, which they should have done, which that should have been the very first thing Joseph Biden did on his first day in office uh, was to rescind Title 42. But he, you know, coincidentally, uh, says that he's going to roll it back today. 
at the same time that he says that the U.S. will welcome 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, but there is no legal assistance provided, no mention of, uh, you know, no help for these refugees from Ukraine who are of African descent. And I smell some white supremacy here, uh, Esther, but I could be wrong. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, yeah, we are, we smell more than that, right? Uh, mainly a lot of BS, but the the rollback of Title 42 is obviously being done to so that he can admit his 100,000 Ukrainian uh, refugees so he can pave the way for that without this additional red tape or bureaucratic or, you know, border red tape. This, uh, you know, it just goes to show the, the continued hypocrisy. And we have to remember that having Title 42 didn't prevent him from continuing over the last several weeks uh, to let Ukrainians jump the line, per se, at the border to, uh, you know, because they were being exempt from it. But without, you know, not having the Title 42 will make things a lot easier and it will take away the veneer, the thick veneer of hypocrisy. They supposedly will allow more people who aren't Ukrainian, who aren't European or white, to apply for asylum, to uh, go through the motions of that. But we know that these racist judges uh, hearing these cases, they aren't approving people's uh, cases. They're, they're not really giving people their day in court. And so even if they're allowed to come in and uh, seek asylum, we know what the court system or the so-called immigration court system is doing to people. And we know that same system has uh, kind of rubber stamp the deportion of thousands of Haitians, thousands of of Guatemalans, Hondurans, and uh, coming from places where the United States has been played a central role in destabilizing and causing the flow of migrants here. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, right now, having Title 42 isn't stopping the, them from welcoming Ukrainians. And then after 42, the, you know, we'll, we'll see if it actually helps uh, people who are non-white trying to flee and uh, have legitimate and, you know, make a legitimate claim for asylum. And there's one other thing that I'm thinking about in terms of this uh, Title 42, just kind of just the immigration at the border, the rush to receive all these, you know, white people basically after years and decades of of immigration by black and brown people being a political football in, instead of a humanitarian issue is that, you know, here you have the Democrats, you know, they've already allowed all these right-wing Cubans to come into uh, Florida. Then we have this wave of right-wing Venezuelans uh, coming into uh, Florida. And they have helped to uh, save off, you know, Florida becoming uh, kind of a purple state, right? The, we kind of thought that, you know, some of the Puerto Ricans coming, that, that that had helped, you know, for a while. But it occurs to me that this is another example of the Democrats kind of dropping a boulder on their own foot because, you know, if these 
people are coming from Ukraine, from Western Ukraine, I don't know if the Democrats can assume that they are, you know, Democrat-leaning. You know, based on what we know, many of them will be right-wing folks who will further uh, dampen the Democrats' chances of of maintaining some kind of hold in this country, you know? So it's it very interesting to me to watch. And there was also a report I heard uh, that on the Peace Corps website, there is a notice to, or was, if it's, if it's uh, been taken down, to uh, volunteers for the Peace Corps that they may be subjected to racist treatment and language from uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees. I'm not sure what kind of, uh, you know, you know, solution they're providing for people, but they're just saying, you know, um, basically a warning or whatever. So as a black person in this country or uh, as a black, as a taxpayer, you know, asking, asked to be asked to foot this uh, resettlement for, you know, Ukrainians here, you know, how am I supposed to feel about the fact that we are, you know, providing refuge from people who they admit will come with racist attitudes uh, here to, you know, more white supremacy, as you talked about, you know, here, here, has, here, has, here, here is another, take another serving of white supremacy on top of what we already face and, and, and pay for it too. Yeah, definitely. And, um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking at the, um, Peace Corps website right now when, and it's still up. And I, I just want to read this sentence real quick because it's just really wild. It says, quote, it is not uncommon for Ukrainians to refer to African-Americans as bracketed N-word. Volunteers of color may be called a monkey or may see children's games with blackface. Now, imagine you're like a, a black person, some other person of color, thinking you're going to, you know what I'm saying, join the, the Peace Corps and uh, do some good things and help people and whatnot. And, you know, basically being told, well, yeah, you know, watch out for the racial slurs. I mean, you know, they, they do that sort of thing. But, yeah, I mean, I definitely take your point, um, Esther. I mean, particularly with, you know, as reportedly, the U.S. is set to welcome 100,000 uh, uh, Ukrainian refugees. And I really think that the, the racial aspect of this has been playing out really, um, rather loudly ever since those videos, uh, were first published of black people being, um, denied entry on those trains and the, you know, uh, 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 like social media just being set aflame by the whole thing to the point where mainstream media couldn't um, ignore it anymore, you know, whereas it seems that they were ignoring it um, at first. And, you know, for me, Esther, I've been thinking a lot about this because so much has come out in the month or so since uh, the Ukraine war has been going on. And there's been so many things that have been left out. Um, of the dominant narrative. But the more we hear these issues facing um, the black um, uh, people attempting to flee Ukraine and the, the, the other non-white people attempting to escape Ukraine, you know, their experience is really inconvenient for the U.S. Because I keep saying that what's being communicated through the corporate-owned media and um, from the government itself is this very uh, uh, binary black and white sort of thing of Ukraine good, Russia bad. And I even remember, folks probably remember not that long ago, there was this um, uh, Ukrainian uh, official who went on BBC 
and said that, you know, uh, the war made him extra emotional because European people with blue eyes and blonde hair are uh, being killed with with no pushback from uh, the person that's interviewing them. And so, I mean, the race question, I think, has been shot through all of this. And I mean, how could it not when we're talking about a military and police apparatus that's um, uh, shot through with these uh, not neo-Nazis and, and other fascist elements? But, you know, it's certainly not the first time, Esther, that, you know, the U.S. is sort of choosing to look the other way when it comes to racism. And it seems to me that um, the 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 discrimination and the abuse and the racism that uh, these people trying to flee Ukraine uh, have faced in the eyes of Washington are worth it as long as, you know, their whims become manifest. Well, that's, you know, I guess. When you when you look at the history of the United States and Ukraine, and you know, I think a lot of us have seen the the movie Ukraine on Fire. It's actually not the first time that the United States will be collaborating with the far right neo Nazi and Nazi element. There, we know from the research done in that movie that after World War II, the United States. Uh, kind of engineered it so that Ukrainian Nazis never had to face the trial at Nuremberg like the German fascists had to. Many of them were uh, given safe passage into Europe or even here to the United States, and they were able to live out the rest of their lives. And, you know, I kind of think about that. You know, I remember, you know, when I was working in corporate media, every now and then, Every now and then there was a story about a uh, Nazi kind of found out and, you know, they were being deported or whatever or investigated, you know, pretty elderly at that point. But there was always this big story and how, you know, this person had basically escaped uh, prosecution and uh, they escaped any type of repercussions for their criminal and murderous past. Well, the United States facilitated a lot of this. We brought German Nazis here to, who started the NASA program, uh, German scientists here. And similarly, we uh, made a safe passage for many Ukrainian fascists, uh, including the notorious Stefan Bandaro, right? And he was killed, you know, years later, I think in France. And so what we're doing now, what the United States is doing right now has a lot of precedent. And it just shows, again, as you said, their willingness to basically get in bed with these neo-Nazi forces, all all the while claiming that they don't exist. If only that is a way to uh, fight Russia. And, you know, we saw that this week Biden made this, whole statement about, you know, that, you know, by, uh, Putin has to go and there's been all this controversy about whether he meant to say it or he, you know, was talking off script. But, you know, it's obvious that in this march to the East constantly over the last 30 years that NATO and the United States want to uh, constantly put pressure on Russia uh, constantly at at this moment to destroy the Russian economy, evict Russia from the world economy. And if they have to use neo-Nazis to do it, 
they're happy to do it. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Esther Averam. And Esther, you know, over the break, I was wondering your thoughts as someone who's, you know, been around the uh, anti-war movement and anti-imperialist movement for a long time. I mean, you know, actually someone who's been around a lot of movements uh, in the streets here in D.C. for years and years uh, that you've covered on your great show uh, on the ground. And I'm wondering, what do you make of the response? to the Ukraine war by the American people, which I would argue is largely due to, you know, the incessant propaganda that they get from the mainstream media and the White House that coupled with, you know, uh, a profound historical illiteracy on the part of the American people that I think is very purposeful on the part of the ruling class to keep a, uh, population ignorant so that they're more malleable and uh and the fact that you know people in the u.s in the broadest sense seem to generally be okay with the idea of collectively punishing the russian people if that means being able to take a swipe at vladimir putin and i'm speaking specifically here of the issue of sanctions and things like that sanctions which are not an alternative to warfare, but are their own form of warfare because of the incredible suffering that um, is exacted upon the people of the country in question. And so, you know, these Russian government officials will be just fine uh, with these sanctions in terms of their necessities uh, of life, I'm sure. But I wonder if you see uh, any parallel with that And what we saw in the U.S. say around, um, you know, uh, like the Iraq war or even September 11th, where, you know, a shocked and hurt United States uh, that was, again, being emotionally manipulated by its leadership, then under uh, President George W. Bush, uh, you know, a lot of folks seemed I mean, perfectly willing to like bomb whole countries off the map out of like this bloodlust and revenge for the horrific attacks of 9-11. And so it seems to me that there's a kind of similarity there that reveals a pattern on the part of U.S. imperialism where, you know, they seize upon uh, people's high emotion around a tragedy, be it a terrorist attack that, by the way, was itself in no small part carried out due to um, uh, a U.S. Uh, imperialism. I mean, you know, we were talking about we're talking about the U.S. 
turning the other cheek when it comes to, you know, these neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Same thing they did with the Mujahideen over the years that eventually developed the groups that carried out 9-11 attack. But that's an aside. But um, it, it seems like it's necessary. This kind of manipulation that we're seeing is uh, necessary for Washington to do uh, what it wants to do. And what makes it so scary is we have all these people in the United States who don't even know that they're being manipulated. They simply think that they're um, responding to yet another war. And so, you know, uh, uh, I'm just sort of curious what you think of that, Esther, and if you see a kind of a commonality in the sense of what we're seeing now with the issue of Ukraine and what we've seen uh, as it concerns wars past. One of the things that I think that it makes it the same but also very different is something you mentioned, and that's the level of propaganda uh, last week on the show, I spoke extensively about a piece that Dan Cohen uh, published at Mempress News uh, titled Ukraine's Propaganda War, International PR Firms, D.C. Lobbyists, and CIA Cutout. And I thought it, the investigation did a really good job at showing the breadth of what we're experiencing. We're only kind of seeing the result of it, which is, I think, this. I don't know, mass uh, fly-out of the American population that you're talking about. And it's really so dangerous because when you have people bombarded on every news station in newspapers that they consider credible and, and you know, giving them real news, then people don't really have many outlets to get the facts, to get the background and the real story. So I think that that's how it's similar, but how it's so different. Um, because even people I know who lived through the first Cold War, <laughs> they, you know, the height of, say, the, the height of McCarthyism, right? They say they've never seen anything like this, where from social media to the, you know, newspapers to cable news to regular news to magazines to whatever source you want to go to. Even, I think, you know, people on TikTok have been weaponized. You know, they have their own briefings, you know, by the White House, right, to, to have the right kind of TikTok, you know, messages going out. So, so I think that that we're witnessing something, something that's really, witnessing something that's really, uh, unprecedented, and uh, I would, you know, definitely point to, point to people to that article. Um, but uh, I just want to say, like, how dangerous it is because I know that you all have probably been talking about the danger of a no-fly zone, and if you can actually propagandize people to the point where they are oblivious to kind of advocating for their own destruction. You know, we've obviously reached a whole new level of this that is terrifying, actually. So uh, if you can get people to advocate for a no-fly zone, not understanding that that means that, you know, nuclear weapons could start flying, then, you know, we have, another, again, another case of, of, of having, you know, American uh, people here in the United States advocating against their own interests. And uh, you mentioned the the comparison to 
September 11th and all the ways that sanctions have been used, you know, absolutely. I think that that most of us can remember that. We can remember the the ways that after 9-11, you know, when the United States had just a taste of what we had inflicted on, just a small taste of what we have inflicted on people all around the world, primarily black and brown people, you know, this country went hysterical. There were attacks on anyone who looked Arab, which includes, you know, many African-Americans, right? Anybody who seeks wearing a turban who, who aren't Arab, you know? And so uh, I, I think that those of us who uh, understand this country's history of the mob mentality, who have either through family, through our own reading as African-Americans, understand the legacy of lynching and the whole way that uh, a town, a whole region can descend on a targeted people with um, assault, rape, murder, and uh, wanton destruction. Uh, We understand that this same mob mentality is being kind of projected outward and not only toward a people in Africa or Latin America or or Asia at this point, but toward Russia. And I think it's interesting that they are othering Russians as not um, white people. Uh, they are kind of picking up the, the neo-Nazi uh, theme and memes in Ukraine that you're, uh, Russians aren't human. Uh, and that is a that is a fascist uh, Nazi type of meme, and they are using that to uh, gin up support among the far right around the the world. And the fact that this country is basically in lockstep with that type of sentiment, it shows, as you said earlier, I think just the hypocrisy because on on here here in this country they want to feign uh yeah, sympathy or you know continue to include black people in the the imperialist project to say that you know we are the world and we are part you're you're a part of us you know as long as you are in lockstep with the imperialist project and you see that when it comes to this Ukrainian conflict that even people who consider themselves white can be ejected not only from the economy, but from the white world. And, you know, um, you know, I don't want to use the the word, you know, kind of like maybe N word uh, when it's convenient and uh, put into the the camp of what they want to call autocracy. Yeah, I think that that's that's all definitely true. And I find it interesting that the the level of indoctrination is so great. And and I feel like an interesting thing is happening, uh, Esther, where even among the so-called left, even among some of the folks who have been around long enough to have lived through that first uh, McCarthy period, um, because I've heard the same thing from some of those people who are much more radical than others who who are like, yeah, this is this is like nothing I've ever seen. This is much worse than the McCarthy era. When you, when you, and I'm glad you brought up the TikTok thing because the idea that the State Department 
the uh, government, the representatives of the U.S. government would have a bunch of people who make TikTok videos about completely inane, non-political, ridiculous things would brief them on what they want them to say about this crisis is an incredibly terrifying prospect knowing that they are giving quite literally the script of imperialism to people who have massive, massive audiences on a social media platform. Then, And those people may or probably do not have any kind of political uh, uh, education foundation, so they don't know truth from lies. So now you've got these apolitical people uh, running away happily with a State Department, uh, a pro-imperialist script, um, regurgitating that script to their hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers. And, and now you have, I would argue, a whole new generation of people who are now very well and, and happily steeped into the imperialist indoctrination. That is a different kind of thing than what we saw with the first McCarthy era. And that is frightening to me. So I wonder, Esther, when we look at the news, when this is the kind of environment that people are receiving their news in, and we look at the reports from mainstream media about you know, the talks that are going on between Ukraine and Russia, I find no reason to believe anything these people are saying. Not that there are not talks going on. I, I absolutely believe that. But when people are saying things like, uh, you know, a, a humanitarian corridor was supposed to be opened, but Russia started bombing. So now there's no humanitarian corridor. People do not know that that is not true. Russia did agree to open the humanitarian corridor. Um, but it was the Ukrainian government who decided, nope, going to close it because of alleged uh, possible Russian attacks. Do you know what I mean? So how how are we going to get the truth out of anything that is said about this war from any of the mainstream outlets? I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that people are so propagandized that... They will believe everything this this uh, 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 government is saying through its media apparatuses up until the moment that you know a nuclear weapon is launched. Yeah, and that's a it's a scary prospect. And the way that, as you said, the the media is not the news organizations are not given giving people the right information. They are actually kind of hiding the possibility of this conflict ratcheting up to the point of nuclear weapons being fired. And that is very, you know, I don't know how any responsible journalist could uh, report on the, the conflict in a way so that you're really hiding the danger of it, you know. And the, the a few things are happening. They're, they aren't really reporting on what Russia says its goals are, they, you know, laugh at the possibility that there's any need for a denazification. So they ignore the fact that there are Nazis and neo-Nazis uh, uh, in Ukraine, which if 
probably have only been strengthened throughout this ordeal, uh, even if they weren't a big presence in the elected government before this. They are ignoring the idea that uh, Russia says it has found the evidence of bioweapons labs. It's, it ignores the idea that Russia is uh, uh, fighting much of the war in the East as opposed to these different cities, which is a way that the West fights wars, to, to level cities and to, to occupy. So it, it's, you know, at this point, you know, I rely on uh, people whose sources I, I trust. Um, I have to rely on many of the people who you probably have on your show, um, uh, Consortium News, uh, Multipolarista, uh, the, you know, a lot of the, the work being done by, you know, maybe Scott Ritter. I listened to some of the other, uh, uh, I think it was People's Dispatch, Breakthrough News. And, and most of the work that we're doing, it's really just kind of, it's coming to a head right at this moment because we see how vitally important it is. You know, we are adults. We are educated. Uh, we have to rely on the fact that we understand uh, facts versus fiction. We understand the history of, of U.S. imperialism, uh, of, of the colonial period, the post-colonial period. And in this moment, in these types of moments, it makes me realize why they don't want the, edu- the American public to be educated, why there's so much attack on people's ability to get an education, a a higher education, because the more that the people in this country learn, the more history that they are exposed to that's true, uh, that really talks about uh, U.S. wars, uh, attacks, uh, um, invasions, the more that they will understand how they're being sold a bill of goods. So it should remind us, you know, if we can save off exhaustion, that it's very important to stay the course and to try to be what the uh, the U.S. media news organizations are supposed to do is to tell the truth. And, um, you know, when, when we're not allowed to do that, uh, we hopefully will have enough of an audience to fight back with us to continue to do our work. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Esther Ivirum is here. And uh, you know the thing about all of this, um, Esther, when we talk about what Washington is after in terms of this, of what 
ultimately is a proxy war in Ukraine uh, that the U.S. is using as a means to really get at Russia, which is what they really want to do. That's why NATO has been encircling Russia for all these years and has made a point to, you know, uh, uh, split up the uh, former Soviet republics and bring those same former Soviet republics under the uh, sort of tent of NATO and, and things like that. But what I think is sort of worth mentioning explicitly is the fact that the U.S., at least from my perspective, um, wants to keep this war going uh, in perpetuity. It wants it to continue. And I feel like Joe Biden has uh, said as much, just like he said that, uh, you know, um, that that Putin, you know, basically has to be uh, taken out of the leadership of Russia, you know, uh, you know, calling for regime change openly. And so I think that that's another point that that's being missed quite a bit here. But we've got a caller on the line. Ingrid, tell us what's on your mind. Once again, Sean, great job you're doing. Fabulous guest. I want to talk about propaganda in Ukraine. And one of the things that's really disappointed me, I have a lot of connections in the pro-Palestinian movement. And these are really people who should know better. They're very accustomed to uh, fighting propaganda. There's a movie called Occupation of the American Mind, all about how it's been a a long-term effort to portray things as, as the Zionists want us to to understand them. And so it's very disappointing to me when these people turn around and accept at face value everything that's been said now. But I want to get to a second point. Um, I called in about a week ago and said how I was disappointed. Well, I am disappointed with many academics. It's not just the media. It's people in academia who are on this anti-Russia bandwagon in one way or another, and even some who are not totally, they, they um, kind of a, a, a limited hangout. And uh, I mentioned Peter Kuznick last week. He has not only um, downplayed Nazis and genocide, but he made a very strong statement. He said, this is definitely illegal. And these people are not admitting and not acknowledging that there is an opposing opinion that actually under Article 51 of the UN Charter, this is a justified invasion. And this is this is going to be something that is going to be debated no matter who wins this war, no, no, no matter how, what the outcome is. Um, a, a Canadian attorney, Christopher Black, published a, a long opinion on this. And if you want to ask either Jamal or Garland, I, I sent the link to the article to them because I have contact with them sometimes. So I think this is this is a point that so many of these these academics say, oh well, we we understand all this background and everything. But then the moment that uh, that Putin went over the line, that's when their their uh, support stopped. They don't think it's justified. And I think that that very essential point should be disputed. All right. Thanks a lot, Ingrid. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Jackie Lukeman, your thoughts? I actually agree with you. Um, and I, I, I recognize that 
there are considerations under Article 5 of the UN Charter and all that kind of stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, and I say that about the UN Charter because nobody has ever used Article 5 of the UN Charter to condemn the U.S. for any of the uh, coups, uh, the regime change actions, the assassinations of uh, uh, liberation uh, leaders. Nobody's ever said anything about you know, applying Article 5 to anything the U.S. has done, not even the 2014 coup in Ukraine that started this whole thing. So, I mean, the U.N. has basically rendered itself in not using its own authority and its own rules, if you want to talk about a rules-based order, in not using its own rules to call the U.S. into account for the things that it's done. But you see, the U.S. Uh, is a voting permanent member of the U.N., and everyone else is afraid of the U.S. turning the, its imperialist uh, uh, target toward them. So, yes, I understand that there is a, it's, yes, when you look at the, the text of uh, Article 5, the, it does, I think we can say that, yes, there is a, a, uh, a letter of the law violation of sovereignty by Russia invading Ukraine. However, you have to take into account that, number one, the people in the Donbass, Luhansk, and Crimean regions asked for Russia's help to protect them from that little thing about the eight-year civil war that no one talked about. Um, so I, is, is that a violation of sovereignty when people ask for your help? Um, and, and then, again, the UN is hardly, using the UN charter to condemn Russia is hardly, I think, uh, an effective measure uh, since the UN Charter has never been used con to condemn any other imperialist thing that the U.S. has done. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that point needs to, I think it does need to be debated. And I think it has been addressed uh, um, by the uh, U.S. Peace Council in a statement that they made, which actually points out the serious problems with this argument, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, you raise the issue of um, the, the rule based order, which we we hear about so much. And I think that what you're describing, Jackie, and what I think um, the caller Ingrid was touching on as well, just kind of shows um, like the sham that that really is, uh, you know, and that supposedly uh, the United States is about doing things, you know, uh, correctly and in order and, and all those sorts of things and, you know, gets very offended when other governments don't. But in truth, uh, the United States, you know, never plays, you know, uh, uh, by the, the some of the major rules of international law and things like that. You know, because if that was the case, then, you know, they, they wouldn't be supporting Israel. They wouldn't, you know, I don't know, be involved in war and conflict all over the globe. But the fact is, when you're the superpower on the world stage, when um, the earth is under the hegemony, basically, of this one country, well, then there's nobody that can actually exact a real consequence when um, these violations are made. I mean, you know, same thing for the uh, unilateral uh, blockade uh, on Cuba that's been going on for uh, 60 some odd years. You know, th th these things are just, you know, illegal. 
And that's why we have these institutions and these charters and these laws and these policies and all of these things supposedly to try to keep some kind of order and develop a real um, international community of, of countries on the same page. But we see that oftentimes what's called the international community is like a, you know, Anglo settler colonial coalition. You know, it's like the U.S. and the U.K. and um, Australia and, and countries uh, like this along with their uh, junior partners who are just sort of uh, going along to get along, picking up whatever perks they can along the way. But, you know, the only rules that the U.S. government follows uh, are its own. And we see that uh, since the U.S. government has the power, like a lot of uh, entities in that position, they break the rules because they can. If they don't like the rules, they'll just break them. And who's going to do something about it? You, you know what I mean? And so for me, um, Esther, I mean, we were talking a little early about the hypocrisy of this. Well, I think this is an aspect of it because the United States um, is constantly wagging its finger at other um, governments over issues of international law or human rights or democracy and things like that, as if, you know, there's any real fidelity to those things by that same U.S. government. You know what I mean? And so as such, it, it's just clear that we can't count on this system or this government to correct itself. And it really seems like it's the duty of the movement to really hold this system, well, to hold this government accountable and not really hold the system accountable. I mean, I think the system should just be, you know, overturned completely. But I mean, to me, um, Esther, really uh, uh, the movement is what can make uh, all the difference here when we see that uh, how those in power are maneuvering are doing so in such a way that could be a threat to humanity itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just making a note to myself that, you know, the world really can't afford any more American ignorance, right? The world literally cannot afford, you know, a new round of, of, of war attacked uh, by the U.S. and NATO. And then, you know, five or 10 years later, they say, oh, sorry, you know, which which they never, of course, said to Iraq or Yemen or or any place like or Vietnam for that matter, right? They we the the world really can't afford it at this point, you know. And uh, when it comes to keeping the the movement honest, you know, you 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 talked earlier about you asked me earlier about uh, my reaction to the peace movement and whatever, and I I think it kind of connects with what the caller said, because um, most of the people who say, okay, on, with the first beat, you know, I, I'm against this invasion, Russia is wrong, and then with the second beat saying, but NATO is also wrong to expand, they, they don't, they count this war beginning on February 24th. They never talk about the 14,000 people killed in East Ukraine since the coup. They never talk about, they never treat that as if it's a site of war and attack, you know, when these people had declared themselves to be independent of the coup government. They didn't want to be a part of a, of a right-wing uh, Ukraine government that was trying to ban their language and their newspapers and their media and, and kill them in the, like, for example, in the Odessa massacre that, that Phil Willato spoke about earlier in the show. So... Uh, I I have a problem with uh, people who consider themselves peace activists who don't want to be consistent 
in how they apply these rules that they're making up. I mean, isn't that a war on the people of East Ukraine? Isn't that a war on their human rights? Aren't they people? And if you're not acknowledging that, then you're just feeding into the narrative of the far-right neo-Nazi movement in Ukraine. And the other, the other thing is that the, the, the media narrative does not, you know, I mean, that feeds into it also. So I just think that, that in terms of keeping the movement accountable, we have to struggle with each other. We have to say, okay, why are these, why are these people not worthy victims? How come they, they aren't given the same type of sympathy, which is something you talked about earlier in the show also, as the, these victims that you want to highlight now, far more people have been murdered and, and um, far more infrastructure has been leveled in East Ukraine by Kiev than in this uh, current conflict. And uh, we, we have to keep on letting people know the truth and we have to keep giving people these facts because they're obviously not getting them in corporate media. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you know, uh, it's sort of like earlier when you were mentioning, um, you know, all of these uh, analysts and in, uh, independent and alternative uh, media platforms uh, that people turn to and can turn to, to the extent that they're aware of them to really, uh, you know, get the other side. And, and that's just what has been very purposefully discarded in the United States. It's simply the other side of the argument or an alternative argument. It's this very dogmatic, almost uh, religious sort of um, uh, dedication, if you will, to the dominant narrative as it concerns the war in Ukraine. And we already know for a fact that these um, tech giants like, you know, uh, Google and, and YouTube, which, of course, we got kicked off uh, here recently because the lady, uh, I think it was from Politico or something, snitched on us and wrote about it. <laughs> but, um, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, it, it, it's documented that they deprioritize those types of platforms and have since reported of even further uh, deplatforming them all in the name of supposedly uh, snuffing out, quote unquote, uh, disinformation or misinformation or what have you. And and in truth, it's wild that, you know, the most propagandized people in the world are not being told, well, you can't see an alternative view on this question because that might be propaganda. I mean, again, it, it's a kind of uh, abuse of uh, people's consciousness that we continue to see here in the U.S. and also that this U.S. government can get away with um, stoking this war forever. I mean, it's been said um, time and again, and it's true uh, since all of this first began, that the U.S. is perfectly willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian, which I think shows this whole human rights question to be an absolute lie. If you're concerned about human rights, then why keep funneling weapons and and, and uh, military aid to the Ukraine that will only extend the conflict and increase the suffering of the already suffering Ukrainian people? And so it's just so transparent what we see the imperialist U.S. state doing as it concerns this question. And it feels like a kind of distillation of what the U.S. has done historically and up until this very day. I mean, it's a fact. U.S. imperialism is 
excruciatingly consistent, right? And as such, I think that uh, it's important that we stay as consistent as we build the movement to defeat it. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We want to thank Esther Revere so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all the new episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.